right, I, w- I wish we could watch that whole video. If you've seen it, you know it's hilarious. But uh, good morning, guys. Uh, glad to be with you. Good to see you. Well, I can't see your smiling faces. It's, uh, now we can. There we go. Okay. Uh, I'll go ahead. For those of you who weren't here a couple uh, weeks ago when I got to preach, I'll introduce myself. My name is Rob. I'm one of our elders here at H2O. And uh, I'm primarily responsible for H2O City. So we have our, our morning service off campus. I'm usually there on Sundays. So that's why you don't see me around as much. Um, but I am excited to be back with you guys and get to speak this morning. So uh, basketball season is upon us, right? The pros, I think, already started. UC has their first game sometime this week, right? Um, so the, the days are getting shorter. The weather's getting cooler. So uh, all outdoor activities are, are about to become indoor activities. And for those of you who are sporty and like to, to play pickup sports, that means it's basketball season, right? So how many of you here have played pickup basketball? Right? Okay, so we've got a few people. If you've ever played pickup basketball, then you know how true that video is. Um, I wish, like I said, I wish we could go through the whole thing, but like, there's just all these very specific ways that people's personality kind of come out on the, the court. And one of the things I find interesting is I, I think that a lot of those things that we just saw there are really just different versions of the exact same thing. Your game is trash. And you don't want anyone to know that, and so you just find ways to cover it up, right? So there's the excuse guy who's just like, every time it's like, oh, it's not, it's my shoulder, dude. And like, um, but then there's also like the my bad guy. That's who I tend to be out there, right? It's like, you make a mistake, and you're just like, oh, my bad, my bad. And then someone's like, you're good, you're good, bro. It's all good, right? And then it's like, oh, we're good. Like, they forgot. It's not going to notice. And then the ninth time you dribble off your foot, they're like, I think you suck at this. Should have picked somebody else. Um, but, but even, you know, like the football guy, it's like, I'm just going to mask my lack of talent in unchecked aggression, and then no one can call me on it, right? It's like, if you travel, then no one knows you can't dribble. Um, and I think what's going on is, is people want to be perceived as, as good basketball players, and maybe don't want to be perceived as bad basketball players, and so we find these ways to cover it up, right? And, and the question kind of becomes, does it really matter what people think about you if your game is trash? Well, not if your objective is to win basketball games. That's for dang sure, right? Maybe if your, your objective is to get people to think highly of you, then you're doing exactly the right thing. But if you're actually out there trying to win a game, um, that's not going to be a winning strategy, not, not admitting the full extent of where you're at athletically. Um, and I think that that's a, an important question we can ask in a lot of areas of life, honestly, is, is, what, is what is my actual goal here? What am I trying to do? And are my actions lining up with what I say I'm trying to accomplish? Because if you're, if you're out there just trying to protect your own image on a basketball court, you're not really trying to win games, right? And I think we do this in a lot of other areas of life. It's an important question to ask in regards to our faith, right? Like, wh- why are we here this morning? Wh- why do we call ourselves Christians? Why are we trying to seek God? And do your actions actually line up with what you say is true about the world? Uh, and so the parable that we're going to look at today, I think, speaks some deep truths about this idea. Uh, and so we're going to dive right in. We'll be in Luke 18. If, if you want to flip there, if not, it'll be up on the screen behind me. Um, Luke 18, verse 9. I'll go ahead and read this for us. He, Jesus, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes in all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, so uh, I got to speak about a month ago on the parable of the prodigal son or the, the two lost sons. And I think that this parable that we just read here is kind of in some ways like the very condensed version of that, that same parable. It's got a lot of the same themes and messages going on there. So with the prodigal son, we, we said we got to look at who the audience is, who Jesus is talking to. And here it's, it's nice and explicit for us. It says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Um, and, and so it, it's right there. It's directed at people who are self-righteous, right? So people who believe that they're on good terms with God because of the things that they've done. And what we talked about last time was that can sometimes be a deceptive struggle because if you think that you're good with God, you're, you're not going to notice your shortcoming, which is that you think that you're good with God. <laughs> but also you can be in a position where you actually know your struggles and you know your shortcomings but what you're hoping is that someday you're not going to struggle with those things. Someday you're going to be better than you are, and then you'll feel good about yourself. And that's also self-righteousness. It's just placing your hope in a future self-righteousness rather than where you're at right now. So we're going to talk about that more as we go on. Characters in this parable a little more explicit. In the other one, we had these, these two sons who represented like Pharisees and tax collectors. And here uh, we have a Pharisee and a tax collector. So just laid it out there for us. Um, and, and I think you have to kind of get over like the Sunday school mentality of what you've been told about these people. Like I think we have this, this idea that the Pharisees are like these skeevy kind of mean-spirited like Disney villains where they're just like kind of sneaky bad and they say all the right things but they're really super evil and it's obvious. Um, and then the tax collectors are like these like white-collar criminals where it's like, oh yeah, like they're bad but like Jesus loved them so they're probably good guys, right? Like the tax collectors, there's a reason the Bible continually talks about them as like the worst of sinners, because they were the worst of sinners. They had sold out all their brothers and sisters of the Hebrew um, nation to, to the Roman Empire, and they were collecting money from them to support the Roman army, which was brutally oppressing the Jewish people. And so they are actively engaging in supporting this oppression of their brothers and sisters by extorting them and taking money from them. These are wicked, wicked people that were just despised in that culture. And, and the Pharisees, you know, I said this last time, but I, like if there was a Pharisee here in our church today, we'd probably all think very highly of them. Like they were good people. They were kind of the gold standard when it came to having your actions in line. And so we even see this in his prayer, right? Like he prays, um, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, is that judgmental? Yes, he's, he's kind of looking down on the tax collector there and looking down on other people. But that prayer in and of itself is not necessarily evil. Like, I've prayed that prayer before. There have been times that I've been sitting across from someone, they've been talking about the things in their life, and I'm like, man, God, like, thank you that's never been a part of my life. Thank you that's not my struggle because that, that seems rough and I don't want to deal with that. So he's saying I, I've kept myself from sin, or rather God has kept me from sin. God, I thank you that you've prevented this from being in my life. And it's not just that he's kept himself from sin. He's also um, gone to great lengths to introduce righteous actions into his life. So it says he fasts twice a week. Like anybody here do that? And I'm not talking about like the bro science, like 16-8 intermittent fast. Like he's not pounding protein shakes on his off days, okay? Like he's doing this for religious reasons. It's hard. It's difficult. But he wants to be closer to God. 
and he, he tithes on, on everything that he has. So he's going above and beyond when it comes to tithing. So he'd be tithing on things that he bought in the market and his um, stuff that he uh, grew in his crops and, and things like that. So like an example for you today, it would be not just tithing on your income, but tithing on your scholarships and like finding a way to tithe on your meal plan. Like every 10th swipe goes to Grant and Perkle to get them into center court. So... Um, <laughs> going above and beyond to, to add these righteous works into their life. So th this guy, he, he's kind of got it all together from the outside. That's what it looks like. So we've got here, we've got the worst of sinners and the best of the best in terms of the righteous people of the world. And yet, how does this parable end? It says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. So that we're justified, that means right before God. His sins were forgiven. God didn't see him as a sinner anymore. He was justified before the throne. Rather than the other. See, if we, if we ignore that last little bit of the passage there, I think we're missing out on something really important here. Otherwise, it's just a story about like, oh, isn't that nice? Like the tax collector gets to go to heaven as well. It's like, no, he, he gets justified and the Pharisees not. So there's something really important about paying attention to that. So, so let me ask you this. Which one of these two guys would you rather be like? You might be like, I, can I say neither, right? Because like, I don't want to be the Pharisee. Like, he isn't justified before God. Like, that, is, that is less than ideal for a Christian and a churchgoer, right? But at the same time, I don't really want to be like the tax collector either, like worst of all sinners, hated by his fellow man. Doesn't sound like very much fun. That, that's fair. I, I'm not saying this is a dichotomy where you're one or the other. Um, I think what we've got here is two extremes, kind of two ends of the spectrum. And I think most people actually find themselves somewhere in the middle, right? And so you're not as righteous as the Pharisee, but you've done some good things. In your life. You're here at church on Sunday. Congratulations. Score one for the home team. Um, <laughs> You've, you've probably done some things you're proud of in your life, but you're, you're also not as much of a sinner as the tax collector, but you do have some struggles and some things you're, you're working on and, and you'd rather not do anymore. And so you find yourself in, in this middle space. So if that's true of you, let me ask you this. Which one of these guys are you modeling your life after? Because what I find in myself and in most people who find themselves in that middle ground is they go, man, I, I, I do some good things, but I really like to, I really like to be in the, the Word more. I really like to, to pray more consistently. So I want to start fasting on a regular basis and, and make that a part of my life. And I've got these sins and these struggles that I don't, I don't really want to do anymore, so I'm going to get some accountability there. I'm going to fight against these things. I'm, I'm not going to let that be a part of my life anymore. But if, if that's what we're doing, aren't we trying to be more like the Pharisee? And if, if he doesn't go home justified and the other guy does, maybe that's not what we want to be doing. And that's this deception of self-righteousness. It's, it's not just thinking that you're good enough and that you've done enough and you're on good terms with God. It's wanting to be good enough. It's looking at your life and going, man, I, I'm not satisfied. There's some problems here. But, but if I just got my act together, if I, just, if I just stopped being such a failure, if I was just more faithful to my commitments to God, if I just pursued him better, then I'd get it. I'm close. I'm almost there. And if that's the state of your heart, you're just trying to be the Pharisee. I don't think that's a great idea. So 
man, I think it's important that we look at the implications of this passage and what it's saying about the states of our heart there because there's some really important things I want to draw out. So I think the first thing we need to do is this, recognize the one thing that matters most. So in, in the tax collector, we have the worst of sinners and he goes home justified. He goes home righteous before God. His sin is not held against him. He's saved, if you want to use that language. And if that's true, then that says something. I think what it says is this. When it comes to justification before God, our external actions and external righteousness don't matter at all. Now, I, I can feel the level of discomfort in some of you because you're like, mm, I don't think the pastor's supposed to say that. That just feels like not what I heard in church. And it feels like you're handing out a hall pass to people to just go do whatever they want. But man, this is scriptural and we need to look at this. I think we get, we get so uncomfortable with this idea, we start looking for flaws in the Pharisee. It's like, oh, he was, he was judgmental, such a meanie. If he just wasn't looking down on other people, he'd probably get into heaven too. It's like, no, no. He's perfect in his actions, doesn't sin, fasts twice a week, tithes on everything he has, little judgmental. Worst of sinners. Like the scales are still coming out in the Pharisee's favor on that one. It's not because he was judgmental and mean. It's because he trusted in himself. He trusted in his own righteousness that that's what made him good before God. And the tax collector trusted in God's mercy and forgiveness. So I, I want to look at a, a passage here I think gets misinterpreted a lot of times. A few chapters back in Luke. This is in Luke 6. It says this. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bushes. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them... I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke out against that house and could not shake it because it had been uh, well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell and the ruin of that house was great. So I think people will point to this passage and they'll be like, this is why I'm justifying my pursuit of righteousness, right? See, fruit matters. We need to be producing good fruit for God. So it's okay for me to push after these good things. But here's the thing. He's not talking about the quality of the fruit. He's talking about the kind of fruit. So why are there not figs on a thorn bush? It's not a fig tree. Why are there not grapes on a bramble bush? Not a grapevine, okay? So I'll put it this way. Um, I am a really bad gardener. And I've spoken about this before. I don't know why I keep trying, but I just I have this appeal of I want to grow my own vegetables in my backyard. And uh, to this point, it has not worked out super well. Um, but conceivably, we could go out. We could find an expert in horticulture, right? They could come to my house, and they could help me fix my garden. Okay, so they'd be like, oh, like your soil's off, pH balance, something sciencey. Um, you need to plant these at this time and these at this time and make sure they're getting this amount of sunlight and stuff. And conceivably, they could take my underperforming garden and they could optimize it, right? And we would get some better fruit out of that. 
then if I take him around to the front of my house and I go, okay, now can you help me with these bushes here? They're like, yeah, what's wrong with the bushes? Just no grapes at all. Like for five years, no grapes. Well, they're bushes, so... Yeah, but I just, I'd love to have some grapes growing here. No matter what I try, just it's not working. So you're the expert. Help us out. Right? It's, it's not that hard to take low-quality fruit and make it high-quality fruit. You have enough knowledge. You have enough willpower. Anybody can do that. To take one kind of plant and turn it into another kind of plant, that would be a miracle. And I heard Ravi Zacharias say this earlier this week. He said, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Which one of those is the miracle? When it comes to producing fruit, there's only one thing that matters. What kind of tree are you? You might be producing low-quality grapes. Might, might have some, some bare stalks every once in a while. But they're still grapes. Because you're a grapevine. If you got thorn bushes, it's like, oh, in a pinch, we could have a thorn salad. Like, no, it's not going to work out that way. Okay? <laughs> Only one thing matters. What kind of tree is it? Same thing with the next parable. What kind of foundation is there? It doesn't say anything about how expensive the materials were or how impressive the house was to people who saw it from a distance. One thing mattered. What was the foundation built on? Storms came, the one with the foundation survived. Now you might be like, oh, but Jesus says, he says, you got to hear my word and obey my word. Yeah, okay, you can't be indifferent to the message of God. But scripture is clear that the response that God is after is not you cleaning up your act and trying harder to produce good works. The response that the tax collector has is not to clean up his life. It wasn't like, oh, I, I need to stop being a tax collector. I need to stop extorting people. I need to start fasting more and tithing more. No, he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We don't know what happened when he went home. We don't know if he was so filled with conviction that he, he paid everybody back. That's what happened to Zacchaeus, that wee little man we all know and love. <laughs> Church kids, I love you guys. Um, we, but we don't know what happened. Jesus doesn't talk about that because that is not the main thing that matters. The main thing was the position of his heart before God. He knew that he needed the mercy of God to be justified before him. And no amount of good works is ever going to change that. So the next thing I think we have to do is this, sacrifice the allure of good works. I, I think it's just, man, for, for so many of us, who've been in the church for a while, there's just such a temptation to think that if I get my act together, that's when life's going to be good. When I stop struggling with this sin that I hate, when I am, am so faithful in the word and stuff, and God will just, he'll start working in my life, and I'll feel so happy and blessed all the time. And, and man, that's just not what it's about. You look at the Pharisee, and he had everything together. And yet he made one critical mistake. He trusted in himself. He thought that that was enough. That was the source of life for him. And see, I, I don't think that most, most of us struggle with this full force self-righteousness where you, you think that what makes you right with God is your good works. But, but that is a common belief amongst people. I think if you go out and ask 100 people who claim to believe in God and you say, are you going to heaven? They'll say, yeah, yeah, I'm going to heaven. You say, why? 
a large portion of them are going to say, I'm a good person. I'm pretty nice to people. I treat people fairly. I don't cheat on my taxes every year. Um, I'm a good person. And, and if that is the state of your heart, I plead with you, talk to somebody because you're not a Christian. If you think that you're right with God because you're a good person, then, then that's just what every religion believes. We, we follow Christ because we believe that he is our access to heaven and nothing else. Nothing that we've done, nothing that we can ever do. We trust in the blood of Jesus. But I, I think we, we get this deceptive version of self-righteousness where it's not that we think that we're great. We actually think that we, we're very aware of our shortcomings and our failures. And we're trying to get better about it. But we think, oh man, like, I don't know, I just feel like such a failure all the time. I feel like I can't ever get things right. I feel like everybody else has their life together and I'm just the only one who's, who's wallowing in struggle. Maybe if I just work really hard. Maybe if I just, you know, figure some things out and get some more knowledge that and start living differently, then that'll make me happy, and that'll recover the sadness that, that I have in my life. And here's the thing. The Bible condemns this idea over and over and over and over and over. If you'll open these pages and actually read what it's saying, it is so against this idea. The gospel, as it's, as it's laid out for us, it always goes the same way. And especially if you read the epistles, the letters to the church in the New Testament, you'll see Paul and Peter and these other people laying out the gospel the same way. And that's sin is the problem. Sin is what separated us from God and fractured our relationship with him. And we deserve punishment for that. But God loved us so much and wanted to be with us that he sent his son to live the life that we could never live, to die the death as the payment punishment for our sin. And when he rose from the grave, he showed that he defeated death God raised him up into the heavenly places. And through that, we are not only justified and forgiven of our sins, we're given a new righteousness and we're called co-heirs with Christ. Meaning we have not just gone back to zero where sin doesn't count anymore, but God has given us a new righteousness and sees us as his children. And he gives us the spirit and the spirit begins to transform our desires from the inside out and we're sanctified and we become new people. And because we're new people, this is how we should live our life. And so many churches just chop off the whole front end of that and look at the end and go, this is what your life should look like. Do these things. Stop doing these things. And it's just we're cutting out the foundation that it's built off of and missing out on everything that God intends in this. I, I want to read some passages where this shows up so clearly. The first one is in Galatians You know what, I, I'm going to read this twice. I was going to read it in the ESV and then and jump to the message version, but can you guys actually just go straight to the message version? I think this is just so clearly laid out. If you want to go back and read this, Paul's saying no one is justified by their good works. That's not how you get right with God. You get right through believing in Jesus, and that's it. And then the complaint comes up, well, well what about sin? Are you just saying that gives us a license to sin and do whatever we want? He says, no, of course not. But the way you defeat sin is not by your efforts. If you don't get saved by your efforts, why would you get sanctified by your efforts? So I, there's a version of the Bible called The Message. Um, it's kind of a trip sometimes. <laughs> I, I, I do not recommend in all circumstances, but uh, 
I think in, in this passage in Galatians 2, he just absolutely nails it. So I'm going to read this for you. He says, We know very well that we are not set right with God by rule-keeping, but only through a personal faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know? We tried it, and we had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. Have some of you noticed that we are not yet perfect? No great surprise, right? Are you, and you are ready to make the accusation that since people like me who go through Christ in order to, to get things right with God aren't perfectly virtuous, Christ, therefore, must be an accessory to sin. The accusation is frivolous. If I was trying to be good, I would be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. I would be acting as a charlatan. What actually took place is this. I tried keeping the rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central, and it is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not going back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back to the old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God? I refuse to do that, to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. You crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened, for it is obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? I love that last line. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? So he's saying, because I've accepted God's grace, because I understand my position before him, I no longer have to be the excuse guy or the my bad guy. I no longer have to, to find reasons to impress you or to try and impress God because I know my position before him and it's secure in Jesus. And that is the thing that produces change in me. That is the thing that produces sanctification. Why would anyone think that the salvation that I couldn't bring to myself is then my job to complete and perfect by my effort? It's that same spirit of God that transforms you. So one more passage I want to read on this. This is uh, in Ephesians. I think this is just one of the clearest presentations of the gospel that we have. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's your role in the gospel, by the way, (laughs) to be dead in your sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So your state is dead in your sin without hope. Christ comes and not only justifies and forgives your sins, but raises you up to a new position before God. And where do good works come in? They're prepared by God for us to do. So even that doesn't come from us. And so I'll close out with this. The last point I have is I think we need to daily confess our position before God. So I, I can imagine that some of you feel this way because I've had personal conversations with people and I get this response a lot, which is I feel like you're telling me to do nothing, Right? Like you're saying, my sins don't matter because God forgive those, and my good works don't matter because they don't impress him, so I should just not do anything, right? I shouldn't even try. For some of you, the best possible thing you can do is nothing. And by that I mean stop trying to impress God and stop trying to impress other people and rest in the gospel. And what that practically looks like is the next time you give in to that sin that's been plaguing you for a long time, the next time you come up short of that goal you keep setting for yourself, you stop and you go, God loves me right in this moment of sin. He sees me no differently right now than he saw me done it. See me any different in the future if I get my act together or if I continue to fail. I'm his child, and he cherishes me. He's forgiven me, and he's given me new life. And you're going to hate it. It's going to be the most uncomfortable thing you could possibly do in that moment. Because it's so so much easier just to feel shame and guilt and to feel like a bad person and to hate yourself now and think there's a better version of you coming. I'll love that version, but in order to love that version that's better, I have to hate this version. God loves every version. And that truth is so much harder to accept. And so I think for for most of us, for progress to occur in our lives, we need to see all the more clearly that every single one of us is the tax collector before God. Now, I'll be honest about this because I I heard people say this growing up in church, like, oh, we're all sinners. Like, we've all fallen short. Like, we all need God's grace. And I was like, yeah, but I feel like I'm doing pretty good. Like, I went to Sunday school, and they gave us a bunch of rules, and I feel like I kept them pretty well, right? They were like, don't have sex before marriage. Like, didn't have sex before marriage. They were like, don't go out to parties and drink. I didn't get invited, so 
We're good there. <laughs> they were like, don't do drugs. And I was like, don't know where to find them. So we're three for three, all right? And, and, and yeah, there were, there were shortcomings in my life. There were areas where I didn't measure up, but I was like, I, I feel like I'm close. I could look at other people's lives and be like, man, God, thankfully I'm not like that. I've got so much together over that person. I just got a couple of things I need to iron out, and then I'm going to have this life and life abundance that, that God has promised me because I'm following his rules. And then I spent the next 15 years of my life failing over and 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 over the exact same stuff. And it just, it just got really hard to believe that I just was missing something and I'd figure it out eventually and then everything would get better. And I, I, I found out that what C.S. Lewis said was true, which is nobody knows how bad they are except a person who's tried really hard to be good. And, and if you haven't reached that point yet and you're still running on this treadmill of like, oh, I'm going to get it next time, I'll figure it out. Take it from me that you're not. <laughs> and, and eventually you'll get to a place where, where you start to realize how rotten down to the core your desires actually are. It's not just that I want sin sometimes. Sometimes I, I don't even want the right things. And, and half the time when I want the right things, I don't even want it for the right reasons. It's like, oh, I, I want... I want to be a student of the word, right? God, I'm, I'm a preacher. Like, I, I want to just love your word and just, you know, daily get before this and stuff. And, but then when I realize that deep down, it's like, I want that so that people will think highly of me, you know? And so then I'll, I'll have a quiet time and I, I don't really enjoy it and I just kind of skim, but I'll find the one verse to work into conversation later where it's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, Paul said in Galatians, you know, and it's like, then I feel good about myself that I threw my Bible verse in for the day. But I know the truth about who I am. And so I pray even more, God, God, just, just help me to just really fall in love with the word. I just, I want that, I want that, I want that. And then I open it up and I have another quiet time and I just don't like it. And then I feel bad and I feel guilty. And then I feel bad about the fact that I feel bad about reading the word of God. And so I just don't even do it because it just makes me feel like a failure. And who wants to feel like a failure? And I just stop talking to people about it. And, and man, if you, you get on that rabbit trail far enough, you find out that you're the tax collector and you're standing before God and the best thing you can do is, God, have mercy on me. I'm, I'm bad fruit deep down. I'm the wrong thing. And if you don't replace that and change it and make it something new, I've tried really hard. Didn't fix it. The good news is this has been the plan from the beginning. So we're going to go Old Testament here. So you see that this is written through God's scriptures. So, so God gives, gives the people of Israel this law. And that Galatians passage where he said, we had the best system of rules, right? He gave them 613 commandments, I think, that they were supposed to keep. And then the whole Old Testament is just the story of Israel never being able to do that correctly. How many times they screwed up and quit trying and went away and then God has to restore them and bring them back. And so here's what God says about this in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, that after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So he's saying, we're going to do away with this external law, this external list of rules. And the law is not going to go away, but it's going to be put in your heart so that it flows out of you. It's not something outside of you that you set as a goal and say, I want, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be like this. Something that God supernaturally places inside of you so that it just becomes the essence of who you are. It's no longer you who live. It's Christ who lives in you. And then one more passage I want to read on this in uh, 2 Corinthians. So he's going to talk about here in, when Moses got the law at Mount Sinai, he, he came off these, these rules that God had given to his people and his face was radiant. It was glowing because he had been in the presence of God. And he had to put a veil over his face because it was shining too brightly when he was around the people. And so Paul talks about that here. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered to us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. You want a coffee cup verse? You need an Instagram caption? That's a good one. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, of the, uh, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will be what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So he's saying what you need is this new covenant and this new heart. And that's not something that you go get. It's something that the Lord has to reveal to you. The Spirit has to come into you and lift that veil and teach your heart 
the truth about who he is. And as you see that happen and you gaze at the glory of the Lord, you're transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And so it's not that you go out and get external things and you stop sinning and you start reading your Bible and it produces life in you. The Spirit produces life in you and that produces the actions. So I, I know I've gone for a while. I'm going to conclude with this story here because this, this is something that I think just epitomizes this so clearly to me. So I told you I, I spent way too much time trying to do things on my own. And it was really like t- about two years ago that I feel like the gospel really started to sink into my life in a lot of ways. And so it was actually one of the big catalysts was Fall Getaway two years ago when Tori Mayo preached to, I think he was there this year, right? Like, isn't that dude awesome? Oh, man, he's such a beast. I just want to sit at his feet and, like, make him my rabbi and just have him tell me gospel things all the time. He's so cool. Um, and, and he just preached a, a teaching out there that just wrecked me, and I wept on him, which I'm sure he appreciated, and that's the last time I cried. So, um, but I, as that started to sink down in, into my life, man, it just started to produce change and joy and so many good things. And um, just for, for months after that, I felt like things were just so much better. And all these cliches that I've been parroting my whole life about how, like, Jesus is the best thing in the world and I love God so much, like, they finally started to be true for me after 27 years. And that spring, I went on Beach Reach, which is one of our spring break trips. And, man, it was so awesome. I, you know, I feel like I was, I was out there sharing the gospel with people and was coming from an honest place of like, this is the good news. This is so good. You need to know this. And, and we would go to these worship sessions and have teachings and it was just like, yes, like this is so good. This is exactly what God's teaching me, like just living the life right now. And like halfway through that week, um, t- towards the end of it, we went into one of these worship sessions. Things were going so good. I was so jacked up and I was like excited about worship and everything. And like that's, I'm not normally like a big worship guy or anything, but I was really excited about going in and like worshiping the Lord. And so we get in there and the band starts to play. And as I'm, I'm trying to look up here at the band and the words over here, I noticed that a couple rows up, there's just this row of, of girls from another school that was there at Beach Reach. And, and out of my heart comes this desire for lust. That's like, hey, that's where your eyes should be. You should be checking them out. I felt so gross. It's like, here I am, supposed to be worshiping the Lord, and rather than do that, I just want sin. And and that voice of the accuser comes in my ear that's just so easy to listen to, and it's like, really? You're here telling everybody about how God's changing your life and all this stuff is good, and you're at a worship service. And you want to lust after someone you don't even know. Is that what's in your heart? Do you even love God at all? Is this who you really are? And the next thought in my head, which came from the Spirit, I'm convinced, was that's exactly who I am. And Jesus, knowing full well that that's who I am, chose to die for me. He said, that's my son, and I refuse for you to be separated from me. I know everything you're ever going to do. I'm full aware of that sin in your life, and I love you to death. And I'm going to give myself for you. And that's who Jesus loves. And my heart just broke out in worship. And every lustful thought just fell out of the back of my head. 
And it was just like one of the best nights of the whole thing. Now, here's the thing. If, if I had attacked that the usual way, if I was like, I don't want to be that person. That's not what I want in my life. You know, I'm going to avert my eyes, you know, and like go to the back of the room and like, I don't know, worship against a wall or something. <laughs> like, like best case scenario, best case scenario, I walk out of there having been distracted the whole night, feeling a little self-righteous. Like, I did a good job fighting that lust. Like, score one for Rob. And worst case scenario, the shame and the guilt of the whole thing just ruins everything about my week. And that would have been just a fraction of a glimmer of what God actually had for me in that moment. And so, man, how do we grow in the Lord? It starts with the gospel and it ends with the gospel. And, man, I just, the band can, can make their way down here if they want to. I, I, I really feel like I need to say, guys, that I think this is the sin of our church. And I think that because I know this is the primary thing in my life. And, and we make disciples in our own image, you know. And it's just so easy to care about the appearance of righteous, righteousness more than actual righteousness. And it's so easy to care about the appearance of intimacy with God and forsake actual intimacy with God. And, and it's deceptive because you don't even know that you're doing it. You think that it's the right thing to do. How could God not want me to pray for, for righteousness and for sin to go away and to seek him better? But, but our motives remained unchecked. And I think it's because where are your eyes set? Is it set on the things that you need to do and the ways you need to change and how you need to grow? Or is it set on the cross at all times? And so if you guys can just like strum for a little bit, I want to give you guys a couple of minutes just to I, I even hesitate to say get right with God because I think just growing up in church, sometimes that invoked this image of like, oh, I need to like repent really hard and like if I repent correctly enough, I'll change. It's like, no. Getting right with God is recognizing that you play no role in getting right with God. He's made a way for you. And so are you, are you, are you the my bad guy and you've gotten really good at confessing your sin over and over and over? there's no marketable improvement at all. But you've just gotten really comfortable in apologizing for the sin that you're committing. Or are you the excuse person where when someone calls you out on something, you can just figure out a way to, to make sure that people don't think you're actually as bad as you are. Are you, are you Mr. Accessory where you're just piling church activity onto yourself, thinking that if you go to enough services and life groups and prayer meetings and worship nights, that that somehow puts you right with God? There is one thing that puts us right with God. It's, it's admitting the full extent of our brokenness. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If your spirit doesn't lift the veil in my heart that blinds me to my own self-righteousness, I will never change. So thank you, God, that you see exactly who I am. 
you see me better than I see myself because I can pretend and I can convince people that I'm something that I'm different than I am. You're not doing anybody any favors, least of all yourself. He sees you and he loves you. And as you become more and more aware of that love and you keep your eyes focused on the glory of Christ, you will be transformed. So whatever it takes for you to to find that state of heart, man, just cry out to God for it.